Class is in session. You're listening to Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshake. Let's go! Now, let's start the show. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you so much for checking out today's show. This is episode 51 of the Squat University podcast. The goal with each and every one of these shows is to bring you as much value-packed content to help you move better in the gym and in life, decrease your body's aches and pains, and help you reach your true athletic potential. Now, today you guys are in for a great treat. Today's interview podcast was featuring Dr. Jacob Wilson. Now, Dr. Wilson is one of the world's leading experts in exercise and sport physiology. And what I found so awesome about this interview you guys are about to hear is how he's able to take the findings from so many um, extensive and complex intricate research studies and just boil down the information in a way that's easily digestible for every single one of you guys out there so that you can empower yourselves and improve the way in which you approach your training so that in the end you can become more efficient and find that true potential for what you're capable of. It's all about taking that extensive and very complicated science, but making sure that every single one of you guys can take something away from it. So that is what you guys will get out of today's episode. Without further ado, let's jump into it. Here's today's interview. Dr. Jacob Wilson, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join today's podcast. Uh, For the few people out there who do not know who you are, can you give us a little background and insight into your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, first, thank you for having me on the podcast. I love it. I love what you're doing at Squat University. It's just, uh, we were just talking earlier, but like, I honestly think you guys have the best Instagram on the net and definitely like the most applied. So um, congrats on all you're doing, man. Um, As for me, um, I basically, I have a facility, a laboratory called Applied Science and Performance Institute, um, 21,000 square foot facility dedicated to the science of strength and conditioning and figuring out what makes athletes elite and then how can you take anybody and move them closer to that level. Um, you know, anything you can imagine for science we have here Been doing this stuff a long time. Also on Instagram, I have, you know, my background is a lot in muscle skeletal muscle physiology. That's what my doctorate's in is skeletal muscle physiology. And, um, have a lot, I've done a lot of studies for, um, a lot of years on it had the opportunity to do a lot of studies published over 200 papers on the topic. Um, and, uh, you know, just really trying to take that information and make it easy to understand for everybody who's listening, um, and really spreading it out to the world. That's awesome. And that is a hundred percent the goal of all the stuff that I do here with Squaw University is just taking boiling down all that complex science that's out there and just giving it in a way that's digestible to every single person out there. So I think all the listeners today are going to get a ton of knowledge because I mean the wealth of knowledge that you're that you have and that you have um, accumulated through all your research and times uh, working with athletes is is just awesome. So um, let's dive into, I guess we'll talk about today's going to be the science of training and nutrition. Now, from the day we walk into the gym as a young high schooler for most of us, uh, whether you're a weightlifter, a powerlifter, a crossfitter, bodybuilder, because I know you work with a lot of bodybuilders, our goal is obviously continual progress in st- size, strength, performance. However, as every single person knows that's even picked up a weight, after a couple months, every single person hits one of those uh, plateaus where our progress stagnates and we're unable to continue busting through those uh, and seeing just more and more gains. From a scientific perspective, you know, how do those 
pro or plateaus happen? How do they occur? And what are some ways that we can work through those? Yeah, that's a great question. Plateaus suck, you know, <laughs> and, and the more well-trained you are, the quicker you're hitting them. I think mm -hmm. the biggest thing is why do people make adaptations um, at the beginning of training? Because everything's new. Yeah. Everything is new. And what is adaptation? You're essentially adapting, you're essentially changing and making your body able to survive something that's brand new. And I think basically what happens is the first thing that happens with a plateau is that the stimulus, the training stimulus is no longer novel. It's no longer new. Mm -hmm. Let me say this. There's some, one of the guys, um, I, I think a lot of people look at gains like this slow, small, linear increase over time. Like, oh, you know, I can only add five pounds to my squat a year or, you know, oh, I can only gain a half a pound of lean mass a year. And that's going to happen in like, you know, a couple ounces a month or a pound a month, you know, and they look at gains as linear. But in reality, there's a great study. One of my friends is, uh, is Dr. Hakkinen and he's in Finland. And I, several years ago, actually it was back in 2010, I went and spoke at a conference of, of his in Finland at his university. And if, for you guys who don't know what Hakkinen is, he's done more strength training studies than anyone in the history of anything, anything in strength condition, even more than William Kramer. Well, wow. William Kramer is amazing. So I talked to him and he goes, listen, he goes, Jacob, a lot of people think that gains are linear, but they're not. He did a study that was like um, well over a year long in elite strength training athletes, elite um, uh, Olympic athletes. And basically what he found is that they would make gains. They wouldn't make gains any all day, plateau, plateau. And then boom, huge gains. Hmm. Then they plateau for a long time, long time. Boom, huge gains. And every time they did that was correspondent to when they would periodize old school. They take the athletes and they change up their, the entire facility that they trained in. So mm -hmm. there's also something, a new environment. Everything was novel. Everything was new. Every couple months, they would change them up completely. Not just the training program, but the entire training facility. Mm -hmm. And basically, he goes, and all the studies that he'd done, that's how people make gains is a lot of times it's just huge jumps. And what happens is, like, basically, we keep doing the same training stimulus and then maybe someone will log on to Squat University. <laughs> they, see, <laughs> they see something new they've never seen before. Mm -hmm. They institute it, and then they make they put on thirty pounds on their squat, fifty pounds on their squat, mm -hmm. and then they stay there for several months. And then maybe oh maybe I should go back to the Instagram page again. <laughs> they see something new, and boom, they add thirty pounds to their squat. Yeah. It's not linear. It's abrupt. Mm -hmm. And when we first started training, it was abrupt because everything was so new that our body knew it had to adapt or it thought it would die. Yeah. And, and I think basically that when we, it's not that we can't make gains like that. I'm telling you right now, right now we have our guys, we have NFL combine athletes who are, they're actually right now at the combine. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and some of these people in fact, I will email you um, some cool scans from last year's combine. Yeah, that'd we be had, awesome. Yeah, we had guys in six weeks' time putting on like well over 10 pounds of lean mass. Wow. And like literally documented scans. Now, these guys, mm -hmm. I guarantee you, are more trained than 99.9% .9 of the population. Yep. You got guys who are 330 pounds jumping 32 inches. Mm -hmm. 
I'd say that's well trained. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> and they're making massive gains. Why? Mm. Because when they come here, there's nothing they're doing in their life but hardcore, intense, insane training. It's a brand new environment. And they're being pounded every single day to the point where their bodies are adapting, even though they've been training at their at the highest possible level. 95% of these guys will get signed to an NFL contract. Mm-hmm. They're all monsters in the gym. How are they able to make gains like you would expect only someone who's new? Yeah. Because the train stimulus is so novel. So I'm saying like that's the number one thing people have to understand is that in order to adapt, you have to be exposed to something that's 100% brand new. And then, of course, there's an organized way to do that. Now, are we bringing that back to sort of a neurological adaptation as far as like when most people talk about um, like a brand new athlete walking into the gym for the first time, the changes that they see in strength and performance in like the first so many months, six months, a year, they usually equate it to at least in strength into the neurological adapt changes, uh, neurological adaptation in the way in which their body's producing force, not necessarily muscle uh, skeletal changes. Um, and then later on, they're saying, well, there's less neuroadaptations, more changes in skeletal muscle, cha- you know, yeah. hypertrophy. Are we saying that maybe the big changes that we're throwing in and completely changing up the way in which they're training, the place that they're changing, maybe we're adding in some more of that neurological adaptation that people thought was only attributed at first to a beginner? Yeah, I think that you can still make neural adaptations years and years. I mean, I know that's the general, the general textbook is that, yeah. yeah and I think it's right. The majority of gains we make early on are neural and mm-hmm. then muscular. But I think in reality, at the beginning, they're happening in parallel, but the neural so much greater. It outweighs it. The, it outweighs it. Yeah. And I do think that you can still stimulate those adaptations. Yeah. Um, even when you've been training for 10 years, you know? Yeah. I guess it's not as black and white as a lot of the exercise science books that we read, you know, when we were younger, there's a lot of variation, especially depending on the person and the type of training that they've been doing. If they've been training a certain way for, for 10 years, and then all of a sudden you expose them to something completely different. Yep. You know, you could really spark a lot of neural adaptation. That's right. That's exactly right. Now I remember reading like, I mean, most exercise science people have read Mel Sif super training and in there and he was talking about how periodization and the training methods that you're doing as far as waving your, um, your style of training as far as linear and nonlinear. I mean, can we, can we talk about, um, the amount of rest, I guess, that we're bringing into the changes, the wave like changes and creating like super compensation and changes in that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, um, like first like as most people who are listening know this but you have like you point out there's linear periodization there's non-linear traditional mm-hmm. linear was kind of originally built for like people who were peaking for maybe one or two events during the year so you might go through a conditioning phase or hypertrophy phase which might last one to three months and you're more doing you're focusing on your condition you're focused on building muscle and that might change to more of a strength focus and then a power focus. Whereas your non-traditional, you might change up every, every week or every day even. So mm-hmm. maybe like in a given week, you might actually be doing a conditioning workout, a strength workout, a power workout. Um, and you might even have a light day for like a taper or something like that. Or you might do it every week, you know, conditioning week one, strength, power, kind of a taper week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so basically... Those are structured 
somewhat different differently. And it depends on what you use will depend on your training status mm -hmm. and also your level of conditioning. Um, so I think the biggest thing about periodization is your programming and uh, variation and your planning rest. So yeah. I think those are the main things. And so you going to the rest component of things that really goes to like the level of training that you're at and um, how much rest you need. One of the things I think people are using a lot now, because people would program in rest. Like for example, say that you're, you have a month, you're training really hard for a month maybe your first week's moderate, your second week's um, hard, your third week you're going to kill yourself, and then the fourth week you back down mm -hmm. to a taper. So there's a, there's a lot of different ways that you can program and rest in there. Yeah. Um, but I think the main thing is that if you continually just try and add weight and you continually just try and add volume, eventually you are going to need rest. Mm -hmm. So whether that's programmed in a monthly basis or a weekly basis, um, or even a couple times throughout a year, um, it's certainly important. Yeah. And what does that rest physiologically do to our body? How does it change and give us that adaptation that allows us to sort of have a much better week the next week after? Yeah, absolutely. So number one thing is to realize that you have a training stimulus and then you actually need time for your body to adapt. Mm -hmm. So for you to actually adapt, if there's, if you're training hard, let's say you train and you, but and you bust your behind the gym and now you then bust your behind in the gym the next day, you don't have enough resources to actually adapt and adaptation. For example, could include, um, building new muscle mm -hmm. adaptation could include strengthening your connective tissue. Adaptation could include, time for neurological adaptations, you know, for your central nervous system to adapt and create new programs or refine programs. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in fact, if you look at neurological adaptations, basically it's during the resting period that your brain and your nervous system are reconfiguring what you've learned and doing what we call consolidating that information. And so basically you need time to recover for that to occur. Yeah. Um, now, granted, the more athletic you are and the greater your training experience, oftentimes, maybe sometimes the quicker that can occur, depend, mm -hmm. it depends. But, um, and that adaptation process certainly takes longer the less trained you are, oftentimes. Yeah. But that's what's happening. You're giving your, chance to buy, uh, your body a chance to adapt. And if you're training during that adaptation period, it might not have that opportunity. Yeah. It may be just taxed out. That makes sense. So during that rest, we're not only biologically with our muscle, connective tissue, and bone creating adaptation. I remember talking to Dr. Stuart McGill last week, and he was talking about how a lot of power lifters, when they're you know only squatting once a week, they're having that huge load placed on them, and they're adapting their bone, the trabecula struts basically in the bone to become stronger so that they can bear more load. Yeah. Um, but we're also having that adaptation neurologically to allow what was just placed on our body to sort of set in and become more regular in that we're able to produce that amount of force and at the coordination that we want it to. That's right. That's right. And the key, the biggest thing is, can you give enough rest so that you adapt, so you supercompensate, and right when you supercompensate it, you're training again. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that timing becomes difficult. Is there any ways that uh, an athlete can better perfect 
the knowing how much rest they need or when to take rest rather than just sort of trial and error? Yeah, we actually did a lot of research with a very simple scale. We used a lot of stuff. Okay. We've used a lot of like different monitoring tools. And the simplest tool we use that was probably one of the one of the most effective was called the perceived recovery status scale. Okay. The perceived recovery status scale, which basically says if I'm zero, imagine the worst cold and sickness you've ever had. You're overtrained and you can't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. A 10 is I know for a fact that I'm going to go in and hit a PR in every single lift. Yeah. Okay. Um, I feel stronger than I've ever been. Okay. So what we found is that when athletes, when they trained, if they constantly trained at like, so sometimes you're tough and everything, but if you're constantly training like a five or a six, mm-hmm. every time you're going in the weight room, you're not really making a lot of gains. Like your hardest workout should coincide with anywhere from that eight to nine to 10. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when you're feeling that you're like a five or a six, those should be your lighter workouts. Interesting. And basically what we found is that when we took people and they ignored that kind of scale. So, so you had everyone in the same group mm-hmm. and say that they're all in the same training program. And then one group was a five or six and the other one's a nine or 10, but they both do the hard workout. Yeah. The people who are five or six actually maladapted. So they stopped, they actually went the other way. Yeah. So, so in other words, training based on that perceived recovery scale is a way that it, that you can adapt the training program to yourself mm. and you can, when you're journaling, you can kind of get a picture of when am I peaked and when am I not? And you can adjust yeah. your rest and your splits based on that. That's a great idea. So it's almost like using an RPE scale. Yes. Yep. Pri- like waking up in the morning. Wow. I feel greater. Oh my gosh. That yesterday's workout killed me. That's and right. And then journaling it. And then that day adjusting preconceived notion coming into the workout. Hey, I should probably hold myself back a little bit or, Hey, let's go hard today. That's exactly right. Interesting. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Um, have you looked into, and this is a science I've heard about it. I haven't really looked too much into it, but heart rate variability. Yeah. Heart rate variability. There's a, there's some, there's a lot of data on heart rate variability and endurance. And now there's a lot more that's coming out in strength, uh, for strength athletes. Okay. And we actually definitely see, um, heart rate variability basically as being, um, a strong indicator of, um, your readiness. Okay. To train. Now w- that's always, everyone's baseline stress levels are going to be different. But okay. like, for example, we actually use heart rate variability with the Tampa lightning. Hmm. So we will monitor like the whole team throughout the season. And we notice that during their practice, we, when they're freshest, mm-hmm. they have a certain baseline. That's the thing is everything's based on a baseline. You know, when you're fresh and you feel great, if you're monitoring your heart rate variability, you know what that will correspond with. Mm-hmm. And what will end up happening is that like, if the, if the lightning starts to overtrain, you'll see that their heart rate variability will go um, down and meaning that they're more stressed mm-hmm. and their workload will stay the same. Or sometimes their workload will go down and their heart rate variability will go down, which means they're more stressed and they have less workload. Yeah. So they or, you know, so in other words, they're more stressed for the same workload. That's not a good sign. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I think that people who are very technical and I know there's a lot of technical listeners out here, mm-hmm. understanding your own physiology is a great idea. I think that's a, like another level of monitoring. So basically like you understand your baseline, you understand where your heart variability is when you feel great, when you're lifting great, 
you have that baseline. Then you can see, or for a given workload, if, if here is my workload today, here's my training volume this week, average heart rate variability was X. If next week, my train, if next month, my training volume was the same, but my heart rate variability indicates a more stress, that's a sign that you probably need to back off. So you need to basically have a ratio between your heart rate variability and your training load. Yeah. What's your training load and how is your overall stress levels responding to that? If, if you're more stressed, your heart rate variability is indicating you're more stressed, but your workload's the same, that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a very good indicator. But Has for every been, athlete, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Has there been science that's looked into long-term use of heart rate variability in strength athletes? Not like long-term in strength athletes. Mm-hmm. More of the long-term sciences and um, and more endurance athletes, and it does correspond. Mm-hmm. I can tell you from three years of like monitoring, like the the, the lightning or strength power athletes, yeah, are definitely power speed athletes, mm-hmm. and they lift a lot of weight and they're very explosive. It corresponds very well with their performance. You can almost predict when a player needs. If in if, if we t- if we tell the coach, for example, this guy is a danger in danger, and they don't do anything about it, yeah. he usually falls off. He injures himself. Interesting. Uh, yeah, he 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 plays horrible that game. You can it's very predictable, but you need for power lifters and strength athletes or bodybuilders. You need a lot of data. You almost mm-hmm. have to gather a couple months of data so you understand yourself. It's difficult to just go by a book and goes, oh, well, if you're here, you're green. If you're here, you're red. Yeah. You need to know your own green and your own red. That makes how sense. how that corresponds to your training volume. And usually that takes a couple months to get enough data of your own to sort of figure out sort of where you lie and sort yeah. of how your body varies. That's right. Interesting. That's right. Has there been any studies or just yourself <laughs> seeing any relationship between the heart rate variability and the previous scale that we talked about, sort of waking up in the morning and giving yourself your own RPE scale for how you're feeling in the morning? Yeah, they correlate very well. Oh, in awesome. Fact, yeah, that RPE scale when you wake up in the morning correlates very well to heart rate variability. It correlates very well to cortisol, yeah. to testosterone cortisol ratio. It cor- cor- correlates very well to muscle damage. That was one thing we did was we actually looked and saw how it related to all the different indicators of damage and stress, like the physiological ones that were more high-level monitoring tools. It it just turned to be just a very simple tool like, wow, I feel like I'm a five today. Well, that probably should be your light workout that day. You know what I mean? Uh, Even more advanced, sometimes it seems to even go with the actual uh, lift. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of more advanced. Sometimes like you feel like horrible on a squat, but your bench isn't so bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so, but yes, it correlates very well with that. That's interesting. I mean, I guess it just is just another tool to give you some objective data to go with your subjective. Exactly. Data. I know. I mean, every weightlifter, powerlifter, I mean, every athlete, they wake up and even if they feel bad, they got a heavy workout in the books. You'll almost talk yourself into it, but sometimes yeah. that objective, you know, feedback paired with this objective may just sort of help rein you back when you need to, so that you then can progress when your body is ready for it. Well, and that's the thing. And, and I'm all, I'm all for like, let's say you have a heavy workout today and going like, I'm not doing so well. I'm still going to push through it. Yeah. But if you give your, if someone gives themselves flexibility, I mean, they know they have to get that heavy workout in this week, Yeah. but they know they also have a moderate and a light workout this week. Mm-hmm. So if they feel horrible, I get it. You need to be tough for strength and powerlifting. You need a lot of guts. 
And yeah. sometimes it's good to sit, tell your body, no, I'm going to push through it. Mm-hmm. But for long-term adaptation, it may be good to do your lighter workout that day and two days later get the heavy workout in. There's research indicating you might make more gains doing that in the long run. Interesting. So there's a, there's a tough guy thing. I think it's good for mental performance and stuff. For sure. But then there's the adaptation part of it and being the technical athlete. Yeah. And I know definitely from personal experience, sometimes reining yourself back in is, is one of the hardest things to do. Cause you're like Monday, that's my heavy day for squat. I know, you yep. know, you've been thinking about it for days. It's coming up, it's coming up. And then for whatever reason you wake up Monday morning and you're not feeling it. That's and if exactly you don't right. perform well, then you're just stressed out the rest of the day, you know, but if you could rein yourself back in and say, Hey, we're going to change it up. We're going to do a light day today. And we're going to go heavy on Wednesday. Sometimes that could, like you said, long-term provide a better adaptation so that you can have that good day. That's exactly right. And there's so many different things that can interfere with that. Like, for example, you point out, let's say I do my heavy, I'm going to do it on Monday Mm -hmm. and I do it. And then I don't do as well. Say my lifts are all off. Now I'm stressed the rest of that day. I'm stressed the next day. My confidence is low going in. Mm -hmm. Most people have to realize that recovery, recovering from stress and adaptation, a lot of times your body will view it as general stress. Yeah. So the stress from the weight room could be, uh, maybe even less than the stress of your girlfriend just <laughs> got in a fight with you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that fight that you got with your girlfriend actually can impair adaptation. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so, and so performing now. So let's say on the weekend, say Sunday, you were ready for Monday and you got in that fight. You're, you might feel horrible and it might impair adaptation on Monday. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? So it's the truth. It really is. I, I guess that speaks to the whole term, what, happy wife, happy life? That's 100% right. <laughs> That's yeah. 100% right. Perfect. All yeah. right, so let's do this. Um, if you had a couple different bullet points for those out there who have hit plateaus a number of times in their training, what are some of the main things that they can do to bust through those plateaus in the future when they do happen? Sort of like, you know, factor one, two, three. What are some of the main issues? I know we've talked about a number of them so far. Yeah, well, I think the number one thing is, is, like I said, number one way to bust through plateaus is variation and trying to plan that variation. So Mm -hmm. I think there's like a, so number one I'm gonna say is that you need to have, uh, whatever your goal is, there's specificity and specificity and then there's, there's variation and they sometimes seem to conflict. Mm-hmm. So one thing is, yeah, you're focusing on a given lift, but make sure that you have a calm. Number one is make sure you have a complex of exercises that you're varying behind the lift. Yeah. I'd say that's number one, because when we see in studies, if we did a study where basically we had guys just squat and they had higher volume, mm-hmm. uh, or they did squats and they varied a complex of exercise behind it you know, every couple of weeks, the guys who, even though they had lower volume in squats, who if you're varying complex of exercise behind it, that were specific to the squat, mm-hmm. you continually make gains. So most guys, yeah. So most guys just vary reps, sets, weight a lot of times, vary the exercise behind the criterion lift, I think is probably the number one way that you can avoid plateaus. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, so, that's, maybe, so maybe adding in like uh, do one or two less sets of squats and add in an assistant exercise Bulgarian split squat for the next block exactly. or, you know, an RDL, single leg RDL, double leg RDL, something like that. That's exactly right. Gotcha. You have to have a complex and the Bulgarians actually, that's one of the things that made them so great. They actually would vary complex of exercise around their criterion movement mm-hmm. all the time. So 
uh, that's number one. Um, number two is like I talked about was auto regulation. And I think the auto regulation, which we talked about is basically that, um, have a plan, but make the plan flexible, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, you're going into the week and you have a certain amount of variation. And basically I would say that you need to, um, have some flexibility with that. So if you have a heavy day, a moderate day and a light day, then I would say, make sure that you, um, accommodate your internal load. Yeah. You know, you know, how you, how you're perceiving that load, accommodate Mm -hmm. it with the training program. Um, and then three, I think a really great thing to avoid plateaus is to vary your frequency, um, and volume. I think that's a really great way to do it. A lot of times we just vary sets and reps, Mm -hmm. but I think varying frequency and volume is another major way that you can help adapt. So for example, Mm-hmm. Let's say that I'm doing 20 sets uh, for my lower body twice a week, and that stops working. Mm-hmm. You can't just say I'm going to do 30 or 40 sets. But what you can actually do is you can say instead of doing it two days a week, I'm going to lower my volume and maybe do five days a week, but I'm going to only do uh, six or six or eight sets per workout. Okay. And then when your body adapts to lower volume, but higher frequency, it's no longer used to high volume anymore. Yeah. So now you go back to the two, two days a week, high volume. And all of a sudden now it's a huge training stimulus. So I think varying frequency and volume is another tool that you can, um, use to bust or a plateau. Um, and I think the other thing is to, you always have to realize that there's that, Overall, and then of course variation and in intensities. Mm. Yes, there's specificity, but just if someone's a power lifter, it's not. You can't just always lift heavy. You yeah. have to have some burnout sets in there, some conditioning sets in there mm-hmm. that will actually contribute to the overall strength that you're gaining. So I think those are some like some basic tips that I think you should always include. So again, varying exercise selection is very very important. Yes, stay specific. If you want to get good at squatting, you're going to have to squat but you're going to have to vary around that and even vary within the exercise itself. Yeah. So you can, you can take a squat and change that, vary that up quite extensively. Like you said, Bulgarian squats and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. I think that's a lot of good information that some people can take away from. All right. So let's uh, switch up the conversation. Let's go now to sort of the nutrition supplement side of things. Let's yeah. talk, the first thing we do, obviously we've got our workout planned at two o'clock today. The first yeah. thing most people think of is my pre-workout routine. So I'm thinking nutrition for pre-workout, possible supplements prior to. Let's talk uh, food first. Yeah. What are sort of what science saying is the best thing pre-workout to be eating sore so I can maximize my performance in that workout? Yeah, for maximizing your performance in your workout, I think it always depends on like obviously how high the volume is and how hard the workout is and everything like that, you know. But I think pre-workout. Um, you're going to want something that basically sits well with your stomach. That's probably number one, because the thing is in powerlifting or bodybuilding, especially powerlifting though, mm-hmm. and strength training in general, a lot of your energy sources are, should already be there. Like your muscle stores of carbohydrates should be full going in. And if you're lifting heavy, probably 90% of the energy you're producing is from those stores that are already there. Okay. So what you're real, you're not necessarily pre-workout trying to refuel yourself you're trying to provide enough fuel for your brain okay okay 
So, because you, if your nutrition was good going up to that workout, you should have the internal fuel source. That makes sense. So basically for that is you're going to want something light. So if, you know, something light could be something that's going to produce something slow burning. So it could be oatmeal an hour before. It depends on what your body adapts to. Well, like, for example, for me, if I was doing a hardcore leg workout and I had a big salad and steak, I'd probably throw it up. <laughs> that, you know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't fit well with me. It's too hard to digest. Mm-hmm. So you need to have something that's a combination of you don't want something that's so fast burning that your blood sugar goes up and it drops. Makes sense. Because then you walk in the workout shaky. Yeah. But you don't want something that has too much fiber so that all of a sudden your stomach hurts yeah. and you're not, you're, you just don't feel good. And there's too much blood flowing in the digestive tract to be able to go mm-hmm. the muscles in your brain. Yeah. And so you don't want that. So you want probably a moderate meal. It depends. It could be if you're, if someone has a light stomach, it could be as low as 300 calories. If someone has a bigger stomach, they're trying to gain mass. It could be as high as a thousand calories, mm-hmm. but it's something that's moderate to digest, you know, like, oatmeal is not too hard on my stomach, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. That's easy. And then a easy, more easier to digest protein source. Something that breaks down easy. Again, like mm-hmm. this is just from what I've seen, like if you're having something that's very heavy, like a big steak or a burger before you're in a leg workout, that mm-hmm. could draw blood toward the digestive tract and take away from the workout. So something that's easy to digest, like, um, like whey, or a protein shake and uh, easier to digest carbohydrate, but not too fast, a mm-hmm. little bit of fiber in there. That's what I would recommend probably like an hour to two hours before you work out. Okay. Um, is, there, is there anything as far as, you know, the percentage of carbohydrates to protein that best stimulates? I get in the, the thing I liked, as you said, it, we're stimulating our brain. Because yeah. most of it, especially strength athletes, it's not that the nutrition we're having that hour before, that's not what's fueling us muscle-wise, that should already be stored in our body. That's right. So we're trying to stimulate our brain. Is right. there anything necessarily, you know, percentage-wise, carbs to protein to fat that has been shown to be best in doing that? Yeah, typically I go like low. Um, I would go probably like a balance between mm-hmm. all of them. Like, okay, you know, it could be 30, 40% carb, 30, 40% protein, maybe 20, 30% fat. It's probably something that's good that will sit well with your stomach. Okay. You know? For those athletes who are like very low carbohydrate, um, very low carb, we actually, there's a study we have in review right now um, with my, uh, a friend, a really good friend of mine. He actually used to be in my lab. Mm. He got his master's with me and now he just finished his PhD. His name is Jordan Joy and his doctorate, his dissertation, Jordan's, was basically looking at if you were low carb, meaning keto. Mm Mm-hmm if you could take carbs before your workout, he found that you can get it almost up to 30 grams and actually not break out of ketosis. So even guys who are like very low carb could benefit from having some carbs before their workout. But like I said, probably, probably, you know, 30 to 40% of carbs and um, protein, maybe 20, 30% fat. Interesting. So definitely having that balanced approach and not just having a a huge bowl of fruity pebbles or something that's just straight. That's right. Or as good as those are. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk, obviously that's nutrition. <laughs> Most people, at least a lot of the weightlifters, powerlifters, I know they have some sort of pre-workout drink. Yes. Obviously a main component is caffeine. Mm-hmm. With caffeine showing us that it can do beneficially for our, for our performance. 
Well, caffeine definitely helps. Like it, it definitely helps with the cognitive performance. It makes you like pumped up. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes you ready to lift. My advice always on like uh, caffeine or any stimulants are save that for the workouts that require the greatest central output. Yeah. So like if you use it every day, it becomes less effective. I think that using caffeine on your heavy days, the, the days that you require that central output, that's when I would use caffeine. Gotcha. You know, and you should be so sensitive to it. You could take, you could probably take 100 and 200 milligrams and actually get a benefit out of it. If someone's having to drink two monsters to before they work out, and I've been there, (laughs) (laughs) like I've been there, you know what I mean? It's probably now it's not as effective because basically all it's doing at that point is bringing you up to normal baseline. You want caffeine to take you over your baseline. So that's why I suggest strategically using it for your two to two to three heaviest workouts, hardest workouts of the week. Okay. And let the other days don't and let that help your workouts. That's harder. It's easier said or, or harder. Sure. Than, yeah. You know what I mean? So the yeah. point is like everyone wants to wake up and you're in coffee and everything like that. But like yeah. if you're in a hard training block, yeah. if you save your caffeine just for your hard workouts, you're going to be so much better. Um, I think. Yeah. Well, so I that's I, yeah. one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like personally. So my day usually starts at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning seeing patients. So I usually have that one to two cups of coffee in the morning. And then I work out at lunchtime in between seeing patients. Yeah. So it's very normal for me to have that cup of coffee or pre-workout again before my workout. But what you're saying is that like on my light day, if I have light squats on Wednesday, yeah. just, you know, completely right. disregard it, have my yeah. same pre-workout meal, but no caffeine, but then save yeah. it for the heavy days on Monday, Wednesday, or whenever it is. And in doing right. so, eventually I'll change my adaptation to that amount that I'm having prior to to where I'll probably have a better response and have better performance potentially on those heavy days. That's exactly right. And you're going to be even more excited about the day because you almost look forward to the caffeine. Yeah. You know what I mean? (laughs) So you it's it's a conditioning effect. For sure. Condition yourself to like, I can't wait to do a heavy workout and you get the caffeine It conditions and associates to like heavy and high arousal. And it doesn't make caffeine just a normal thing. Mm -hmm. It's something to look forward to. Um, for those heavy days. I like that idea. Um, what do you have to say to the large majority of people that take a lot of pre-workouts? And obviously there's a wide range of them, but we're talking C4, you know, all those different ones that obviously the main components caffeine, but there's so much other crap that's thrown in there with the proprietary yeah. blend that we don't necessarily yeah. know what they are. Yeah. What's, what's your thoughts on yeah. all of those? Like, you know, like I said, I think that basically people can become too reliant on it. I'm mm-hmm. all for like something that's going to help you centrally. Right. Okay. But, but if someone takes it every single day, it could add to your overall stress. And I think it adds to the overall stress of adaptation in general. You know what I'm saying? So I think basically that you should, if you're going to use those types of free workouts, again, I would just say, especially those to the everything, the everything to just those hard, hard workouts. The other thing yeah. is, People who are doing that, and I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it or anything, but they're going to need to cycle off. If you okay. become more and more reliant on it, all it's going to do is take you back up to your baseline. Mm-hmm. You don't want that. Yeah. So there are ways to kind of get off of there. You need to look at alternative non-stimulant ways to get you pumped up. Like there's a lot of research on like ketones right now, taking them. Mm-hmm. And that actually, I don't know if you've ever tried them before. I haven't. Okay. Like 
if you try those, I have a, like a, we do a lot of research in our lab on them. Like mm-hmm. we have massive like barrels of this powder. Yeah. And, so, and we try different combinations because we're trying to see what, what can match your signature. What happens is like, think about this for a second. Like um, if you haven't eaten for a long time, mm-hmm. your body actually still has to perform. Mm-hmm. That's when ketones raise up. And ketones actually go into your brain and they provide a neural energy source. Okay. And they actually produce, they yield more ATP um, per carbon for your brain than actually glucose. Interesting. So now you can get a dual fuel. You can actually get the combination of two fuel sources. So say you're like, I'm going to cycle off caffeine for a month or pre-workout for a month. Mm. If you use that as a tool to cycle off for a month and then you go back all you'll need is caffeine. Interesting. So a big tool is, I think the biggest thing I would say for free workouts is once you reach a critical threshold where you can't survive without them, mm-hmm. you need to cycle off them for a month. And ketones are a great way to cycle off. Interesting. Um, because that, when you come off... For people that still like, their goal isn't to be on the, you know, a ketogenic diet. Yeah, you can exactly. still just still be helpful as a pre-workout supplement. It's a great pre-workout supplement. Okay. I really think it's a great pre-workout supplement, about 10 grams if you can. Okay. And I'm telling you, like, even if you didn't take caffeine, the first time you take those, they'll mm-hmm. feel like almost like you just feel renewed. Think think throw from like DVD to Blu-ray. It's like <laughs> it's it's like yeah. illegitimately. Like, and then we do actually in our lab, we have devices where we put like glasses on people. And they look at a screen, they track. Mm-hmm. So you have cognitive tracking ability. And basically, you look at people tracking in a circle, tracking side to side, tracking up and down, focus, focusing on one single point. Mm-hmm. And you see improvements in that. When we take like athletes who are overtrained, they can't track as well. They're not as fast. And all of a sudden, those lines become a lot straighter when you provide like that alternative energy source. Yeah. So, I think that's a good tool for cycling off because I think the key for everybody is everyone knows you can't stay on it and get the same benefit forever. Yeah. So periodizing your pre-workout, just like you periodize your training, I think is a very beneficial thing. Makes total sense. So you, you don't end up being the guy that's having to drink two monsters or three scoops right. of C4 before their workout. That's right. Now that's you right. said about what, 10 grams of, of, ketones? of ketones? Yeah, 10 grams. Awesome. Now, is that something that you would need to periodize as well? Well, all it is is an energy source. We're yeah. just not used to the energy source because most people aren't like a very low carbohydrate diet. But like yeah. if you took someone who was on a keto diet, very yeah. keto diet, and you gave them some carbs, they get a boost of energy. If you mm-hmm. take someone on a low carb diet, on a, a carb diet, and you give them ketones, they get a big burst of energy. And also it's anti, the other things are very good for like inflammation. So if like yeah. you have big knee problems and stuff like that, you have high inflammation and you're you can't take Moltrin and ibuprofen and Advil all the time. It's yeah. a good alternative to knock the inflammation out. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I definitely have to look into that more. Um, let's talk about hydration. How is hydration yeah. affecting our performance? I know a lot of athletes, they get mixed uh, opinions as far as how much they should be drinking prior to their workout or throughout the rest of their day after a heavy workout and how that affects and changes their performance and recovery. Great question. So there's research that actually shows that they, they actually look at hydration status of people walking into like a high level gym mm-hmm. and something like 85% were actually fell in like that partially or highly dehydrated range. Everyone, 85% fell in like a partially dehydrated range. Huh. So when people are dehydrated, 
it does affect central performance, Mm -hmm. meaning that like you won't be able to focus and concentrate as much. You won't be as explosive. Um, and also there's evidence that like you won't get as much of a cell swelling effect, Mm -hmm. which could be important for like hypertrophy, muscle growth. Yeah. So the, the key thing is people are like, should I drink eight glasses of water a day, 12, 15? What do I do? Mm -hmm. The answer to that question typically comes out to like, uh, when you pee, it should be light like lemonade. Yeah. If it's dark like beer, that's a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have to auto-regulate it. Makes sense. You're drinking enough water so it's light like lemonade. That's throughout the day. Around the workout and post-workout, especially if it's hot and stuff like that, a little bit of sodium, a little bit of salt in your pre-workout, and a little bit of salt post-workout, just pour a little salt in there, Mm -hmm. or eating some pretzels, um, things that are salty. Mm-hmm. will actually make you um, actually hold on to water more. You'll help with the cell swelling. That's right. right. Okay. So a little bit of sodium pre and post workout seems to be very beneficial for preventing dehydration. And the rest of the day, light like lemonade. Very interesting. That makes sense. I remember my old football coach when I was in high school always saying that if you're not peeing white le- or, you know, very clear lemonade, basically, yeah, that's right. more water. Exactly right. That's right. Um, makes sense. Are there any... I guess you would say more essential supplements for strength athletes uh, in order to improve their performance that we need to be looking into. Obviously, a lot of people think off the bat creatine, um, and we just talked yeah. about caffeine. Are there any other ones that we that most strength athletes should be looking into? Obviously, as a supplement, so after we're, we get our hydration down and our good nutrition, are there any other things that have been shown scientifically to be that effective for most people? Well, I think creatine is definitely great. I think uh, for sure, you know, I think um, having protein, whey protein supplements really important. Mm-hmm. Not just because a lot of people go, what if I just get my protein for food? I think whey protein is great post-workout. And I think whey protein is also great for your immune function. I think okay. people need to focus. Everyone just focus on protein synthesis and yeah. muscle building. You know, and I know if you didn't get sick throughout mm-hmm. the entire year, how many more gains would you make? Yeah, that's true. So I so whey protein is very good for immune function as well as adaptation. I also think, again, I'm not talking about protein synthesis. I'm talking about immune function. Mm-hmm. I think glutamine is a powerful agent for immune function. People should be focusing on their immune function tremendously. So I think glutamine, especially as you go through a hard training cycle, mm-hmm. 20 grams a day or something, 30 grams a day, up your whey protein a lot. Focusing mm-hmm. on your immune function. I think everyone should take a multivitamin. I think B vitamins are, are good, especially if you're stressing yourself a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I think overall, just like the basics, yeah. like that, those all seem to be like good, tried and true supplements that can help now, you. Talking about immune function, I think a lot of people jump straight to like vitamin C. Yeah. Is there any beneficial, like, I mean, has that been shown in research to be beneficial mm-hmm. immune function wise? Yeah. Vitamin C has been shown when you feel your immune function is taxed and you're starting to get a cold, it lowers the severity and the duration of the cold. So I do think that the the key is like just making sure that like you don't take it right around the workout. So don't megadose vitamin C around the workout. Okay. Try and separate your, uh, vitamin C. Like if you're going to work out like in the late afternoon, have it in the morning. Because there's studies that show if you take a bunch of vitamin C right around the workout, it can pair the adaptation. Interesting. Uh, that's yeah, before and afterwards? That, that's right. Because if you – free radical – some of the free radical production you get during the workout mm-hmm. triggers adaptation. It's a signal. Okay. 
and um, vitamin C blocks that. So you want to take it more like several hours away from it. Interesting. Is there any specifics as far as when you're taking vitamin C, how much, I guess, to, to get the benefits of it? I mean, some people think, you know, just whole food wise, having some oranges or something like that. And then you get other people that are having, you know, the vitamin C packages. Yeah, 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 I do. Yeah. <laughs> I take the vitamin C packages. You know, I told you I just went to China, right? Yeah. And I went to China to meet up with this uh, group um, for, who basically we're going to, I told you, we're going to take ASBI from our facility to the Olympics, which is sick. It was so sick, awesome. man. We're excited about that. Like I told you, we're going to need your help yeah. filling out the strength room out there. For sure. But, but basically I was sleeping two or three hours a night and I didn't know where I was at the time. Yeah. And then the time period when everyone was, when I was going to sleep, everyone here in Florida was waking up. So, mm-hmm. and so it was messed up, but so I did there. I'm not trying to make strength gains, yeah. I'm trying everything I could do to not lose. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I don't care. It's not a timing thing. I was probably taking like, you know, uh, a lot of uh, the vitamin C packets. I took them at that point. Yeah. There are certain times you're under so much stress. You have to, there are certain times where like, you're not, if, if someone's listening to this, if they're get, getting ready to take their finals and they're in mm-hmm. finals week, you're yeah. probably not going to like make your greatest adaptations during finals week, no. but you may get sick. And that yeah. may mess you up for the next six weeks. Mm-hmm. So th- what you need to do is that's the time where you're taking maybe a vitamin C pack in the morning and in the afternoon and at night. Like you're overloading on that stuff. I do mm-hmm. think it's a good time to do that. Makes when sense. you're normal and normal training and stress is normal, you know, you're taking, uh, you know, a couple hundred milligrams of breakfast maybe. Mm-hmm. And it could yeah. be oranges or it could be actually the pills. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah. definitely during this time of year, I know right now in Kansas city, it's like 10 degrees outside. So in the yeah. wintertime, everyone gets sick. So definitely yeah. some food for thought, especially to, to maintain that immune function throughout the year. That's right. Awesome. Well, I think we've been close to an hour. What are some big things that you are uh, doing right now in your future with, uh, with research and, and taking everything, to, uh, especially towards China? Yeah. So, so speaking of China, so I got, we talked about it. I, I just came back from China and we're working with, um, there's a family called the Genting family, and they're one of the top three most powerful families in all of Asia. Mm-hmm. My friend over there, good friend, he's come up to here to Aspie. We've done a lot of work together. His name is um, Chi Wa Lim. And Chi Wa Lim, if you look up Chi Wa Lim in the Olympics, you'll mm-hmm. see a lot of cool articles. Basically, him and his family, um, he's head of the Genting family. Mm-hmm. They won the bid to host the Olympics. And in 2022, and they're, they're building a massive resort um, <clears throat> called the Secret Garden. Because in China, there's a lot of people, a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a getaway in the mountains okay. to go. In there, we're building like a four-story um, uh, sports science academy, basically, wow. that's going to have the top science equipment. So like we have all the science equipment at ASPI. We're also going to build that there. And you name the science equipment, like imagine like doing squats and seeing all sorts of like graphs popping up where you're weak, where your sticking point is, what you need. Everything you can imagine that science is going to be there. Yeah. And so we're building that, but what we're doing here in the United States and what we're going to extend over there Mm -hmm. is we're trying to determine what makes elite athletes elite. So we're developing scoring systems. 
So it could be for someone who's a squatter. It could be for someone who's actually wanted, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of like the Gracie's for ultimate fighting. Like they start ultimate fighting. So we're working with Henzo Gracie right now to build the ultimate fighter score. So we're bringing in all the top MMA fighters in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, who are you name it? We're going to bring them in through this Aspie. Um, and we're going to look at every as physiological aspect that makes an elite athlete elite. So mm-hmm. obviously there's a skill component. Now we'll understand, we'll be able to profile a person and go, okay, here, you're scoring high here. Here's your week. And now they just work on that. That's awesome. So that's the scoring system process is something that we're, we have a lot of passion. Mm-hmm. We're now doing research Like there's cool stuff. I think like research is cool, but a lot of times it gets old, like, Oh, leucine if you isolate <laughs> leucine it does this so if you isolate leucine it, no no we want to understand what makes someone a freak of nature and yeah. then how can we apply that to to us to yeah. normal people how can we learn from that and we can go well gosh an elite power lifter physiologically this is their profile so you're here you need to work on that you know what i'm saying yeah yeah so we're really going more and more like you're doing at squat univert with squat university we're trying to become more and more applied with our research. That's awesome. I love that part of, of exercise science where we're taking something. I remember sitting in the back of class and just, you know, scrolling through journal strength conditioning research. Yeah. Some of the stuff you talk about, like, you know, finding out leucine and how much of it's going to make a dose response, but yeah. man, the applied research, that's where it's at. I that's love where that. It's at, man. That's yeah. where it's at. That's awesome. Well, for all the listeners out there, where can they find you and all your work? Um, well, yeah, you can actually check out um, the the Muscle PhD on Instagram or Facebook, the Muscle PhD. We're going to be relaunching our site, themusclephd.com, here in the next 30 days. And then um, in the summer, we'll actually have like some extensive courses. Um, so, like I said, when I was in academics, um, academics is boring and it, it just, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. boring and you sit in class and all they talk about every single class, the first half of the class, they talk about the Krebs cycle mm-hmm. and you're like, get yeah, heard that already. And then yeah. they go to the next class and you go to grad school and they start talking about the Krebs cycle. I'm like, please, no more, <laughs> no more of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And none of it, when he asks an applied question, the professor never can answer it. So yeah. what we're trying to do is like basically do build out like information, especially for building muscle, mm-hmm. like uh, specifically for building muscle, like basically designing these in-depth uh, analytical courses that are in everyday English and directly applied. So we'll be launching a lot of that stuff on Muscle PhD. Um, so we're super excited about it. That's awesome. I mean, it's basically just breaking down the ivory towers that has been the academic system nowadays. Yeah. Making it to where everyday people can access something and get the information they need. That's exactly right. And that's what we're trying to do is break down these barriers. Uh, There's this big, uh, gap chasm between academics and normal everyday human beings. Yeah. Okay. And in academics, most people who care about is I'm going to do a bunch of research. Mm-hmm. I'm going to speak in a language that no one can understand. And Very I'm true. going to talk down to people. Yeah. Right. But the thing is that like Einstein said, if you can't explain it to like a three-year-old, maybe you're not that smart. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like intelligence is able, the ability to take complex information and make it simple. Exactly. If you can't, maybe you're just, you're just regurgitating what a textbook said. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think that's like high intellect. So we have to, so that's why we created Aspies because 
this academic system, it's slow. It was boring. And so we're creating this sports science center and stuff like that and trying to really uh, make things more accessible. And I think a lot of people are really looking and going like, whoa, I don't have to go the traditional route. I don't have to just like, if I'm going to do research, I don't yeah. necessarily have to be in, because I was in academics forever, mm-hmm. you know, forever doing research. I don't have to go on boring academic route. I don't have to just, you know, go to faculty meetings and then have to do research traditionally. Yeah. Maybe I could break out of that. Maybe there's a new way to do research. Maybe the guy listening to this who falls squat university or the, my platform muscle PhD, maybe they're like, you know what? I like squatting. I want to make people squat better. Maybe I can develop my own thing and start doing my own research and publishing it. Yeah. Like we're also trying to inspire people to come out and do that. Man, that gets me amped because that is a hundred percent what squat university is all about. I remember when I got out of, out of grad school and I still wanted to try to write some research and I sat down and I, I started writing a little bit of research and I think I did like one paper in like the international journal of sports physical therapy. And then I started squat university years later and tried to go back to doing another paper and I was like, I can't even write this way anymore. Like yeah, it's so exactly. complicated. It's so boring. You're repeating the exact same sort yep. of vernacular that all the people in the research labs write. And that's not how we talk to people. No, it's that's not. not how you explain things. And it's that's like, right. yeah, let's take things differently. Let's shape our, the way in which we approach each other's. Cause in, in the end, really, that's how you make a greater impact in the world. Cause you're speaking to thousands of people rather than to, I mean, think about how many people read a research article that you publish. Not many. A, a few, including, including my mom, because I sent her my research article. You know, like, <laughs> you know, exactly. but if, if you can come out with a course or a blog article or an Instagram post that is just as informative, and now you're reaching hundreds of thousands of people, like that's right. how you make a change in the world and push, especially the strength and conditioning and exercise science field that much further. That's it, man. That's 100%. That's awesome. Well, for all the listeners out there, go and follow Dr. Wilson on Instagram. Check out his website. I'll be sure to link all that up um, as I release this podcast uh, this weekend. So I appreciate uh, it. Thank you so much for being on today's show. Uh, It was a great time. And I think a lot of people got out a lot, got a lot out of it. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Aaron. Keep crushing it, buddy. All right. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. See you. That's it for today, class, on Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshig. For more exclusive content, log on to squatuniversity.com.